Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. This week, we're exploring the likelihood of a recession and the factors influencing global markets, covering equities, fixed income, and real assets in this multi-asset fund. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by James Mee, manager of the elite-rated Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund. James, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. So we've spoken a couple of times last year. We, we did a podcast, and I think we also spoke up towards the end of 2023. Um the last time we talked, you were of the view that recession is perhaps possible rather than probable and that we are likely to see a slowdown. I mean, a few months on from that, has your view changed? I mean, how likely is a recession this year? Where do you see the push and pull factors on markets as, as we stand? Yeah. So I think first thing to say is, is we need to distinguish between the US and the rest. A lot of what we talked about last year was US related. I think we could probably give a little bit more detail uh, than that as we look out into this year. In the US, I think we're probably unlikely to see a recession um, uh, You know, over the next 12 months. Famous last words, but let's see. But you know, I think we're coming out of a manufacturing recession in the US, uh, which is generally underreported. The consumer remains resilient. They're less rate sensitive, certainly than we are over this side of the pond. They've termed out their debts. Their mortgages are fixed for 30 years. Um, in fact, it's pretty underreported that you know, the interest costs for US consumers and households are actually negative. So, you know, what do I mean by that? As rates have risen, they receive more on the savings that they have and they hold than they're paying out uh, in their interest. Balance sheets are solid. Nominal wage growth, uh, you know, is still positive. We have positive real wages. So I think the consumer is still fairly well supported today. I don't expect government spending to come down materially in the US um, in an election year. Uh, net exports supported by a flat currency, so that's pretty solid for the US, and they're supported by secular tailwinds, reshoring, investing in securing uh, their own supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the US are unlikely to see um, unless anything material changes. In the UK and Europe, I think we're probably in recession now, or certainly in very low or anemic growth. We're much more rate sensitive over this side of, of the pond less so than we were in previous cycles. So we have fixed mortgages for longer terms, uh, but one and a half, I think it's 1.4 million mortgages roll off their fixed terms over the next 12 months in the UK. So, so we're more rate sensitive in general. Inflation's higher in the UK. Early reports of Christmas spending uh, that we're seeing from companies has been pretty mixed. Um, with signs that the mid-market really consumer is weaker. China is the wild card, I think, uh, flirting with outright deflation, suffering from balance sheet recession, um, you know, property market decline and so on. So US and the rest. And then I'd also say that we need to distinguish between recessions and recessions. It's not necessarily that we go into recession. It's how severe that recession is. And we, you know, if we were to go into recession, either in the US or elsewhere, um, central banks have significantly more firepower today at, at roughly 5% rates that they can cut than they did going into to COVID when we were there or there about zero. Um, and, and from a market perspective, you know, a lot of markets ex-US are not expensive um, and they're pricing a lot of this downside already. If you look at the UK, it's 10, 11 times earnings, Europe's 13 times earnings. So it's reflected in markets to somewhat, to some extent. So when, you, when you sort of turn that to the, the positioning of the fund, I mean, how do you make a call on that? Because there's an awful lot of data going on there. There's an awful lot of dispersion going on there between what you've said, the US and this potential Goldilocks scenario versus yeah. other parts of the world into 2024. I mean, 
how do you sort of break that down? For example, is market leadership going to be a lot broader than just seven stocks that have AI themes running through them? You know, give us an idea of how you you go out plotting a portfolio in, in that sort of climate. Yeah, with that outlook. And- yeah, I, I think I mean you, it's a good way to phrase it. How you positioned, I agree with you. I think the US has been in a Goldilocks environment of declining inflation, growth two to four percent real. Impossible to predict really with any uh, you know any significance what's going to happen over the next 12 months. But as I say, there's a lot of pessimism in the market. So, you know, when you're looking at allocating the fund, how are we allocated within equities, we tend to be underweight US, we tend to be underweight big tech, magnificent seven names, if we own them at all. Uh, and we tend to be overweight Europe, Japan, UK, which is where we're finding opportunities from a bottom-up perspective. As I say, the best way to answer that question is very well phrased is, is to look at positioning. So today we're 50% in equity in the fund. That is bang in line with our 10-year average since inception of the fund. We started last year with 42 43%. We took more uh, equity and other risk as we went through the year and as the data changed you know, last year. And that's how we manage money is we, we update the positioning as the data changes. 20% fixed income and within fixed income, we're longer duration. Uh, and then 20% alternatives, which is predominantly in real assets. Okay. Well, well, let's take each of the last two in turn. So I want to start with the fixed income because 2023 was a roller coaster for fixed income. And mm. the, I just want to get a view really on, well, your view on it really, for lack of a better way of explaining it, and how that heads into 2024. You mentioned 20 exposure. It's more the longer end of the duration side of things. Just, just go into how you see that. Are you bullish? Do you think you'll potentially be adding to that this year? And just a bit more insight on that, please. Yeah. So from the fixed income side, it was a real driver of performance in Q4 for sure. The long duration stance that we held throughout the year and that we maintained throughout the year, and we took it in various different ways, different currencies, uh, US, UK, dollar sterling. We had options as well. Really, it came good in, in Q4. The long duration stance we maintain. So I think the easy moves were probably had in the decline in inflation into year end. But the way we see it and the way we think about our fixed income allocation and a multi-asset portfolio is it's it's there to protect capital, certainly how we're allocated at the moment with longer duration. So and our duration today is about nine years. So for a percentage point move in, in the yield, you get a, a nine, 10% percentage point uh, increase in the price. The way we see it, today is if we think over this side in, in the UK and in Europe, if we see a recession, which you would expect to be consumer demand destructive, we would expect inflation to come down. We would expect yields to come down. And so a longer duration stance in the gilts part of the market where we're allocated uh, would favor the fund. If we see inflation higher, and we had a print today that that missed, if you like, so it was higher than expectations, then short-term rates are higher, longer-term inflation expectations actually come down, and over time, yields come down. And while rates stay higher for longer, you're also more likely to lead into a recession, which, as I say, is consumer demand destructive. So on any reasonable time horizon for, for, for a position like this, one to three years, you know, I think uh, I think long duration um, remains suitable. I, I will come back to inflation in a moment because obviously the news this week. Um, I want to round off by looking a bit more at the alternative side of the bucket and the real assets. You, you've said recently to me, I think it was sort of in Q4, that you were finding quite a number of opportunities in that specific part of the market. Could you maybe just give us a few examples? Yeah. So we have uh, roughly 20% allocation to 
real assets. What do I mean by real assets? Property, infrastructure, specialist lending, asset finance, commodities is how we segment it. Um, and in this, you know, if you put it all together, call it real assets, it's, it's been a very tough two years. So uh, last year, notwithstanding a tough two years in general and an aggregate actually finished up and the positions that we own finished up. And we've been talking about value that we see in the space for at least two years now. We do our own work, we model the underlying, we go and meet management, the board, site visits, et cetera. So it's proper fundamental research to understand what we own uh, and, and, and to, to you know, build the net asset value from first principles. Um, it was very encouraging last year then to see some of the value that we see in the businesses and we see in the net asset values actually crystallize. So Industrials REIT was a name that we own. Um, it was our real winner last year. It was acquired at a 44, 45% premium to the share price on the day that it was announced and a small premium to the NAV in June. And it highlights the value we think, uh, you know, the value on offer, particularly off the beaten track of that traditional commercial property space. So, you know, the sort of retail still facing headwinds, office more recently facing headwinds. Um, uh, and we also think that it highlights the importance of doing the work from the bottom up and really understanding what you own. In terms of what we own today, that's obviously out of the portfolio now. In terms of what we own today that we're excited about, again, this is something I've written about and spoken about before, but uh, it's PRS REIT. They provide newly built family homes private rental market in the UK. They've got a portfolio of 5,000 homes. They have a 97% occupancy rate, which is extremely high. Rent collection is 99% uh, and compares very favorably to other parts of the property sector. Um, and because of the demand for the product, they're actually able to raise rents 5 to 10% per annum, depending whether you're an existing customer or whether you're a new customer, notwithstanding a cost of living crisis. And actually, that's something we were writing about 18 months ago or so. The quality of the tenants actually has been improving because the demand for the product's been rising because we have been in times of tighter budgets. And yet, the shares trade at just under a 30% discount to the company's quoted NAV. Even if you take a haircut on that NAV, a reasonable haircut, you've still got a 20% upside just from the discount narrowing. Uh, and on top of that, we're expecting to receive dividends and some NAV growth over time. Um, just, yeah, so go ahead. Just quick off the back of that, um, are you having to be quite sharp and in terms of your active fund management nature in terms of grabbing those discounts when they're there because they have bounced around quite a bit? In the they have, years. they have, but they have been fairly persistent in the property space in particular, where there's a big cost of capital question and a discount rate question. Um, we are active where opportunities present themselves. Another example is 3i infrastructure that has traded out to a 10 plus percentage point discount in the last few days. We think that's anomalous. We don't think it's befitting of an outstanding management team uh, with an outstanding track record. And we've been topping up our position there. So you have to try and be quite nimble in those opportunities. But, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't say we trade around these names particularly. We usually do the work, know what we own, and then we will own it for the very long term. Actually, 3 i Infrastructure is a good example. We launched this fund just under 10 years ago, and we've owned that for the whole period. Um, so we tend to be buy and hold and, and we will manage our position around it. I just wanted to quickly talk about inflation because obviously we see it tick up ever so slightly this week. Um, we did talk a couple of months back about inflation where you said that falling back to 2% would be very good news on the fund. Just just for the listeners, just explain why in a nutshell that would be the case. Yeah, 
Yeah, I can't remember exactly when I said that, but essentially it depends what's priced into the market at the time. So if the market's expecting high and rising inflation, and by extension, probably high and rising rates, higher for longer, et cetera, which was the narrative for much of last year, um, risk, risk assets and long duration assets tend to be cheaper. The price will already be, have already come off. If inflation then transpires to have been transitory, after all, the reverse tends to be true to some extent, perhaps not to the same extent that we'd seen weakness, but certainly to some extent. And that's actually what we saw in Q4. Um, and then, you know, if we think about the fund specifically, we've kind of touched on this already. Lower inflation, lower yields will be positive for bonds. 20% of the fund, as I say, we're carrying nine years duration. Real assets directly from a duration perspective, we tend to have duration in our core names. So uh, in the real asset space, so long-term predictable, often contracted, often inflation-linked cash flow streams, they tend to have a higher duration and will behave more akin to uh, you know, a long guilt and indirectly. So some of the shorter duration assets, PRS is a good example, they have a cost of debt and a cost of capital issue. And so inflation coming down, rates and rate expectations coming down uh, should benefit those names. And then in equities, from a portfolio perspective, inflation down, rates down, makes cash less interesting. It's not how we think about things per se, um, uh, in terms of portfolio construction by cash or not cash. But, but uh, you know, that's traditional theory: is if rates come down on cash, you get pushed into uh, fixed income securities, then further out on the risk curve and in investment grade, high yield, and then into equities. And um, you know, to some extent, that is real. There'll be a re-rating from an oversold position, duration in the most popular parts of the equity market, you know, that sort of quote unquote growth style, um, where a lot of value in the business tends to be tied up in longer term cash flows. They also have a, a duration tailwind as well when inflation and rates come down. Um, I would just say though, I think that the major move here really has happened. The market's no longer discounting higher for longer. In fact, you know, in the US, we're expecting, or the market's expecting, one and a half percent interest rate cuts as we go through this year. So, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, the, the major part of that tailwind. I would argue coming into the end of 2023 really has been had. From here, it's much more about company fundamentals and knowing what you own. Might be on the off, off slightly off piece here. Then, but you you talked about cash. I believe you had around ten percent in cash in the fund a couple of months back. Yep. Given that move, you've just talked about there. Have you been trying or thinking about deploying that? Given that change of environment. Yeah, so we do look to deploy cash opportunistically. We spend the vast majority of our time doing bottom-up work. And so where we do deploy it, it's it's where we're finding opportunities. I, I finished the investor letter for twenty twenty three. Um, last week. And what I wrote in there is well, we became incre incrementally more positive as we went through the year and moved the fund around, as I, as I said, added to risk. There are still some major risks out there. Um, ones that we know about, political, this is the, that there will be the most democratic elections by number in a single year ever this year. Um, you know, there is almost by definition uncertainty off the back of that. From a geopolitical perspective, you have the Taiwan issue, war in Ukraine, Middle East, and new alliances seem to be being drawn up all the time with what's going on uh, uh, with, with missile strikes in the Middle East at the moment. From a market concentration perspective, you know, it just adds risk. The US equity market is over 60% of the global equity market. The Magnificent Seven make up 28% of the S&P 500. And quite astonishingly, those seven companies 
are now roughly the same size as the whole of the Japanese, UK, French, Chinese, and Canadian listed markets combined. Um, so they're the known unknowns or a few of them. And then of course you have the unknown unknown. So it's not without risk out there. We're receiving 5% daily accrued income as we sweat the cash. And so while we have a total return mindset as a fund, we do pay out the income we receive. And so, so receiving 5% on an annualized basis, um, it's is sort of time reminder, I was gonna say, it's a sort of time reminder that cash in itself is an asset class in an environment like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just wanted to finish by talking about one of the themes which you have talked to us about in the past, which is obviously deglobalization. That ties in nicely with what's happened with COVID, all the geopolitical stuff we're seeing at the moment, amongst other things. Um, one of the companies you've recently added is called Canadian Pacific Kansas City, which is a beneficiary of um, slash reshoring and digs into that theme of deglobalization. Just, just give us... Uh, and in a sort of a bit of a run through of why you've done that and sort of tie in that theme of deglobalization and how it benefits, please. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. So I'd start by saying we're not thematic investors as a fund or as a house. We look for best ideas for long-term investments across asset classes. Um, that said, reshoring is one of a few secular themes that we think will play out over decades, energy transition and security being another one. Um, so it's part of the investment thesis, but it's not the full investment thesis. In terms of Canadian Pacific, Kansas City Southern, as it's called now, or CP as I'll call it, CP is one half of the Canadian class one, so large railway duopoly. Um, following the acquisition of Kansas City Southern last year, completed last year, it now operates a unique T-shaped network across the top of the continents, across Canada, coast to coast, uh, and down the middle of the US, down into Mexico in the south. And we think that this network will give them the competitive advantage, which will play out over many years. Um, the North American rail industry in aggregate itself is somewhat tied to nominally GDP growth. So, you know, we make a, an assumption that this will grow to the tune of 4% on average. If you couple this with the onshoring and nearshoring trend, so part of the thesis, uh, and we're already seeing this, and a secular shift away from higher polluting truck freight onto rail, which again, we see it's a bit more cyclical, but we are seeing. Uh, we think the industry in general should see general revenue growth in the coming years, decades, strong, strong revenue growth in the coming decade or so. So on top of that, then for CP, we think they'll take share from other rail providers. The T-shaped footprint um, gives the company an opportunity at least to offer a superior, so more productive, possibly cheaper service to their customers. In the short term, what we're seeing in the Suez and Panama Canal and the issues that they have there, uh, this could be a boon for them in the short term. It actually could be cheaper to ship from East Asia to Mexico, take the freight off the ships onto rail from Mexico up to the east coast of the US and then back on ships again across to Europe than it would be to go all the way around uh, the continent. So that is a short-term boost. And before the acquisition of KSU last year, CP had the best service performance best uh, operating ratio, or certainly one of the best operating ratios, which is an indication we think of superior oper operating culture. Um, we expect management to be able to apply this to the KSU assets over time. And we have the merger synergies, which we're expecting to play out over the next few years as well. So sales will be tied to GDP, but digital um, and precision railroad scheduling and some of the operating ratio work they can do, plus share buybacks, we think 
could lead to double digit earnings growth. So onshoring certainly part of the thesis, but a lot of stock specifics on top of that sits behind the work. On that note, James, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Since its inception in 2014, the Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund has demonstrated strong performance. We appreciate the collaborative approach taken in designing this fund, as well as its emphasis on effectively managing potential losses. Being a global multi-asset fund, it strategically incorporates various asset classes to ensure genuine diversification. For more information on the Waverton Multi-Asset Fund, please visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm -hmm.